Triathlon Podcast. Finding out how ordinary people do extraordinary things. The old-fashioned way of thinking of endurance is you just go out and do long rides. You'd sit at zone one, zone two, tap it out, and you've got one gear. It's hugely helpful for athletes to build their top end so they know how to suffer. That was Mark Beaumont, and this episode is Cycling the Globe. In 2008, Mark Beaumont broke the the around-the-world cycling record by an incredible 82 days. So that's 18,000 miles unsupported in just 194 days. So when he returned uh, to have another crack at it about 10 years later, but this time with a support crew, uh, to do the same feat, the same 18,000 miles, but in 78 days, uh, averaging an astonishing 240 miles a day, uh, it is that is something to behold. Um, and having read both the books about um, his first round the world trip and then his cycling the world in in uh, 78 days or around the world in 80 days uh, as it's known uh, it's they're just brilliant stories and there's such a, a, a fantastic insight into what cycling um, on that sort of level looks like and what cycling across you know through some of the craziest parts of the world also is like uh, so i really wanted to pick mark's brains on how he uh, endures so much. I mean, 240 miles a day for 78 days consecutively is an incredible level of endurance. So I wanted to know how he does it, you know, how from a physical point of view and also from a mental point of view, he endures such incredible uh, distances. And then also I wanted to chat to him about the best places in the world to cycle and what he's seen and the experiences that he's loved most uh, because he's clearly seen a lot when it comes to cycling. I know you're going to love this chat and I'm sure if you if you haven't already, you will love the books by Mark Beaumont. So enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by Brits Superfood. Now, I've been a big advocate of wheatgrass for many years, uh, but I only in the last year or so switched to having fresh wheatgrass that's then frozen as opposed to the powdered stuff, and I found that to improve my health even more. Now, I've been a big advocate of wheatgrass because I know it's kept me fit and healthy because when I've had spells where I've stopped taking it, I've started picking up the bugs and colds and things like that again, which I, I never seem to get when I'm taking wheatgrass. Uh, I know it improves my immune system, my health, but also it gives me more energy and faster recovery. So loads of health benefits of taking wheatgrass, but Brits um, is field grown, organic, freshly frozen, and they also do a load of amazing juices as well, so that you can combine the two, like the beetroot ones, so you can have your nitrates before or after an event. Um, You can find out more at Brits Superfoods uk, but at the end of this podcast i'm going to give you a discount code or a referral code that will give you 
uh, loads of benefits. So a, a discount, some free products, some free shipping. Uh, but they also have, which is worth just mentioning here, a 110% 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you're not feeling better having taken this for 30 days, they'll give you your money back and an extra 10%, which is absolutely bonkers, but that's how confident they are on the health benefits that you will see as a result of taking wheatgrass just for 30 days. So anyway, hang on to the end of this podcast and I'll give you a great discount code. This podcast is also brought to you by the Tribe Athlon app. Have you ever wished you could find people that would train with you at the time that was convenient to you? Well, the best place to find people to train with is tribeathlon.com or the Tribe Athlon app. Because that way you can find people that want to train at your pace when you want to train. So download the Triathlon app now. So Mark, welcome to the Triathlon podcast. I'm really excited to chat to you today. I've spent, I feel like I've spent a long time listening to your voice over the course of the summer, listening to your books. So I'm really looking forward to, to kind of getting to know you a little bit more and, and trying to understand a little bit about the secrets behind your success. Um, so welcome to the Tribathlon podcast. Um, I wanna, I want, I'd like you to kick off by just telling people that don't know a huge amount about what you've done, uh, about your story, and tell us you know, the, the, the kind of significant events that have happened along the way, because there are quite a few significant events. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, great to. We've been chatting away by email, but great to great to finally have a have a a podcast recording. And um, I guess for people who've got no idea my background, I'm best known for cycling around the world. I've done that twice in my career, but I've made my 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 career out of ultra endurance. You know, I've gone to 130 odd countries in the last 15 years as a documentary maker as a as an athlete, as trying to push firsts and fastest, trying to do things which, you know, have not been done before, not just sort of pipping records and going out there and trying to do things a little bit better. But my hallmark and the thing that I've always sort of really sort of prided my team on is how do we, how do we, how do we really sort of reset the dial in terms of endurance? How do we, how do we do things that, you know, quite often in the planning stage, people are saying to me, that's impossible. Uh, be it the logistics, the training, the the physicality, the psychology, you know, we're trying to do very difficult things. And um, oddly, for people listening to this who are sort of triathletes or, you know, involved in competitive sports, I've never stood on the start line of an event in a normal format. My My game has always been big expeditions. So you could argue that the only person I've ever competed with is myself. And I've been interested in trying to figure out what my personal best is and try to share stories which are important and hopefully inspiring. And I often think for the people that come back to me every day on social media and every all the time in terms of questions and queries, it's, it's about building other people's confidence to to really push their ambitions. So, you know, I always joke that, um, you know, I'm a real diesel engine when it comes to being an athlete. You know, I'm a, I look more like a rugby player than a cyclist. You know, I'm six foot three and 90 kilos. And, you know, typically, uh, 
you know, whilst whilst cycling is what people know me best for, for me, it's always been about where sport can take me. And I've always sort of loved sort of all adventure sports, multi-sport. I mean, if you'd asked me as a 15-year-old kid, my best sports were, you know, big mountain skiing and horse riding. And then cycling became more important. And, you know, recently I've been geeking out on fell running and, and gravel riding and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, a lot of open water swimming this year. So I think the world that knows me sees me as a specialist, an ultra-endurance road cyclist. Whereas if you follow my Instagram feed, you realize I spend my life just going to wild places and having lots of adventures. And, and so how, how has, uh, I, I want to come back to these different adventures because they are incredible, but how, how has lockdown been for you? I mean, have, have you just kind of been carried on exploring uh, and, and have you explored in a different way to what you would have ordinarily have done? I mean, yeah, for sure. Like, like everyone, I mean, I appreciate most people listening. It won't be their job to train and to go out and have adventures, but um, it's impacted us all in terms of our ability to to do big miles or train normally, whatever that looks like. Um, so I live in Edinburgh in Scotland and um, certainly early doors in lockdown when we were allowed to, we were allowed to go out and exercise for one hour a day. You know, how could I suddenly, how could I continue to do what I typically do? You know, big expedition rides, training in the mountains. You know, I couldn't do any of that. It wasn't, it would have been ridiculous. So I thought, well, I can't keep the intensity, the duration that I meant to be. I was training to do race across America this summer in June. So it's a 3,100 mile road race from California over to the East Coast. As soon as that was cancelled and my focus went, I thought, well, what can I pivot to? And I was listening to a podcast with Ricky Gates, the US ultra runner, who had run across America coast to coast. And then when he did that, sort of thought, well, I don't really know home. So he took on this daft project to run every street in San Francisco, which is like a seven mile radius, seven mile block. And, um, you know, for, for a wild man who's used to being in the mountains to suddenly run an urban event like that you know over three months was was amazing and it's a cool little film on on salomon tv on youtube if you want to watch it so i was quite inspired by that the next day i went down to the local post office and i picked up the a to z of edinburgh and uh just sort of mapped it out with my six-year-old daughter and uh she's uh you know a good little cyclist but not you know hadn't really done big miles she's six years old and wasn't super confident on the roads um and so it was perfect because the roads were really quiet so we set out five days a week to do every street in edinburgh and um we ended up spending over a hundred hours together um so even though so much of this year was cancelled and the big expeditions and the films and all the stuff that was going to take me to the other side of the planet you know suddenly i had an opportunity to run 506 miles of Edinburgh streets with my six-year-old daughter who guess what is you know a pretty strong little bike rider now and you know if you were to say to a six-year-old like do you want to cycle every street in your city the answer is no of course not that's crazy or or like I don't know how, how far 500 miles from Edinburgh is but it's probably like you know here to you know Bristol or Cornwall I don't know it's a long way uh, so you would never say to a six-year-old, do you want to cycle to, to Bristol from Scotland? But but if you just do a little bit every day, it's amazing how it stacks up. You know, I would typically run 12, 15K a day. She would cycle alongside me. And, you know, money can't buy that stuff. 
I, I got fit in a different way. Okay, I wasn't doing the high intensity mega miles on the bike, but I was suddenly super running fit, and I've 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 carried on, you know, with some other running challenges this year, and I've got the same fix. I've got the same fix exploring within five miles of where I live than going to the other side of the planet and making films. You know, I've loved it. And certainly to connect with the next generation to do something with them. But like anything in sport, it's not about going nuts and knocking out of the park. It's about what you do every day that makes the difference physically, psychologically, just, you know, we're creatures of habit. I think that's an amazing lesson to learn, isn't it? You know, you, you, you were focusing on what we could do as opposed to what we couldn't do. And you know, I think I think there was a lot of that in uh, in the lockdown. It was like, right, okay, there was a lot of people focusing on what you couldn't do, but for those people that focused on what they could do, actually they achieved huge amounts just in di- in different ways to what they would have ordinarily achieved. Um, so, for those people that haven't listened to your books, what, do you want to sum up the difference? Because you, your two world round the world um, records were absolutely incredible i mean i think the first time you took it took the record down from 290 ish days to 195 days is that right and then you went back and did it 10 years later and brought the record down to an astonishing 78 days so talk to me about how it was to go around and do it self-supported and then the differences by going back and doing it as a supported um crew and, and taking just you know a huge chunk off the record each time yeah, so, if we, so so people who are listening, like if you've not sort of thought about a circumnavigation record before, um, there's pretty set, well, very set criteria on that, whether you're sailing around the world, whether you're running, people have run it, uh, whether you're driving a car or riding a bicycle, um, you have to hit antipodal points, that's two points on the opposite side of the planet. For land-based circumnavigation records, you have to travel more than 18,000 miles. 27,000 kilometers. Uh, you're never allowed to go back on yourself. So crossing the same degrees of longitude, which sounds blindingly obvious, but a few years ago, somebody cycled all the way to the east coast of China and Shanghai and then flew down and carried on across Australia. Well, guess what? Perth is further west than Shanghai. So you've gone back on yourself. So you can mess up in the, in the planning for this. Um, so the first time I cycled around the world, I was straight out of university. I had a perfectly useful economics and politics degree, and I didn't plan to build the career I've had. I simply thought, well, let's go on one big adventure to end all adventures, and then we'll go back to doing my CA and becoming an accountant and working in finance. Because, you know, as a young person, it's very hard to have a, to, to, to know how you could possibly make a career in adventure sports. Uh, you know, there was certainly nobody in my life who had done that. My parents were farmers. Um you know, whilst I'd been grown up in the outdoors and had a huge amount of freedom from being homeschooled until the age of uh, 11 and 12, you know, I, I still didn't know how that could ever be a job. So when I set out the first time, I thought, well, let's get this out of my system. And I would, I would say that even though the two times I've cycled around the world couldn't be more different in terms of the speeds I was going at and the record I set, in terms of the scale of the challenge, they, they, they're the same, purely based on my life experience at the time. So you, you take being a 22-year-old graduating from university, needing to raise 25 grand to head out and cycle what would be 100 miles a day every day for half a year. So ride a century a day between you know now and six months. 
that was my task the first time. That is a that is what an Everest, what an amazingly difficult, complicated thing to fundraise, plan for, and do as a 22, 23 year old. And then, you know, 10 years on, I'm now taking a fully professional performance team. Uh, I've got, you know, tens of other expeditions under my belt. And we're now trying to recruit a team of 40 people over a two and a half year project, which costs over a million quid. And I wouldn't say that that's any harder. It's just, you know, I've been on a journey. I know more as an athlete, I can push myself further and faster. You know, first time around, I was riding four times two hour sets. Second time around, I was riding four times four hour sets. So I'm on the bike twice the amount of time every day. And all 16 of those hours are ridden faster than the shorter amount of hours I was the first time. But but it's more based on, you know, just how you know yourself and what you have the ability to do rather than whether things are in and of themselves difficult. Because athletes come to me all the time when I'm at events and say to me, the first thing they do is they reflect on my events and the scale of them and the stories they've just heard. And then the next thing they say is they reflect on their own challenges and they normally sort of talk themselves down and go, oh, it's nothing compared to what you've done. And that's, of course, completely not true, because if what you're aiming for, your event, your expedition, your endurance challenge, whatever it is as an athlete, based on your life experience, it's got to be uncomfortable. It's got to be difficult. It's got to be, it's got to be the next level in order to inspire you and in, in, in order to be worth training for. So... I, I think it's a great leveler in sport to say that whatever that big iconic challenge is for you, um, it's personal. It's deeply personal and it's difficult simply because you've not done it before. So to compare the first time, you know, I could say, well, the, the, the second time I cycled around the world made the first time look like kindergarten. I mean, you know, look how slow I went sort of thing. And yeah, at the time that was considered remarkable. I remember when I cycled around the world the first time in 194 days and 17 hours, people said things like, I wonder if that'll ever be broken. Well, guess what? You know, in those 10 years, we saw some remarkable efforts and that record coming down and down and down. Now, the thing you've got to realize is when you're doing these unsupported records, it's as much about what happens off the bike as on the bike. So you're trying to find your next meal. You're trying to find a safe place to sleep every night. You're trying to worry about your safety. When you've got a massive support team with you, you're entirely focused on how fast and efficiently you, you can ride. And obviously when you're on the bike, you know, from four in the morning until half past nine, 10 o'clock at night, every single day for two and a half months, I mean, you're going a thousand miles every four days. It's an extraordinary pace to pedal around the planet. So um, I couldn't have done what we did recently without the experience of having done it the first time and everything that happened between the first and the second. And, I think it's interesting for people who are now thinking that they want to have a crack at the circumnavigation world record. They don't have that benefit because, you know, I came into the sport at a time when the, the record wasn't particularly competitive. You know, you could literally fall out of university and give it a crack. You can't do that anymore. It's a very professional record. And I'd love to see how anyone is going to go faster than 78 days. I, I think I loved, I said this to you while we were chatting before we started recording. I absolutely loved listening to your books. Uh, and I listened to them while while cycling uh, myself. And a lot of it was, uh, we were down in, in Cornwall for qu quite a bit of the summer and I was listening to your books while out cycling. And I got so absorbed in, in your books, that I'd have to remind myself occasionally that I was in Cornwall and not New Zealand or 
Afghanistan or wherever it was, um, because they they were just they were really compelling. But it's just made what you've just said made me realise that actually when I think about listening to both books, there was there was always more doubt that you were going to finish the first time than the second time. It didn't. There was much so many more hurdles for you to overcome. Like for example, the spokes. And the, the, the spokes on your bike were such an issue on the first time, whereas you, know, you had a team to eliminate all of those sorts of worries, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when you look at the the margins for error on the second time around the world, they were next to nothing. You know, I mean, for I always joke that if I messed around for five minutes every time I got off the bike, we lost five minutes every time I stopped. That would add a day to the world record, a day that I didn't have in the contingency. So actually the, the margin for error was tiny. And yet the level of professionalism, you know, the logistics team, the performance team, the media team, that well-oiled machine, one of, the issue, one of the issues we, ha, we have had with the documentary and the story off the back of it is that people have often said it looked too inevitable. Like what, what you and your team pulled off. Yes, you've broken a world record. That It's the ultimate. How fast can you get around planet Earth? You know, we might have smashed the world record by 37%. But the fact that you were you know, getting up at half past three, riding four times four hour sets a day, every single day for two and a half months, unless you've ridden a 400k day, unless you know what 240, 250 miles on the bike feels like, and then wake up and do it again tomorrow. There's nothing about that that's inevitable. It's insanely painful. It's, you know, I was time trialing for 1,200 hours. And yet because of the well-oiled machine, because of the process, the planning, the belief systems that went into it, I think for the watching world, it sort of looked like it was almost just premeditated and inevitable. And, and that became a real problem. You know, honestly, I got halfway around the world into the middle of Australia and the news reports, I was calling back and doing BBC breakfast and all the normal stuff. And people were talking about it like it was a victory lap, like I'd done it months before the finish. And I can't tell you what that feels like when you're on the bike. The alarm goes off at half past three every morning. You've had five hours sleep and you've got another 16 hours to ride. And that's just today. There's nothing inevitable about it. And yet to pull off something at that scale and to not just pip a record, but break it by uh, over a month, you've got to build an incredible plan. You've got to have figured out all the contingencies. You've got to do all the big thinking before you turn any pedal strokes. I mean, it's that old sort of familiar, familiarity bias. Most athletes just think, well, I'll um, train hard and then I'll figure out in the race what I'm capable of. I'll leave out my best time once I've... And so you focus so hard on the physical aspect of being the best athlete you can be that you've never sort of zoomed out and considered, you know, what are the other controlling parts of of the race how do you how do you have how do you have a mindset when you're doing an endurance race in particular where you can just ride the road in front of you you're not constantly worried about the what ifs that are over the horizon so it was um looking back a brilliantly pulled off plan by you know i'd say a team of over 40 people but what it looks like is one guy on a bicycle just nailing it for 16 hours a day and nothing went wrong well guess what a hell of a lot went wrong you know I had some serious crashes I you know 
fractured my elbow, I broke some teeth, I, you know, there was issues at border crossings, lots went wrong, but we had such a minute plan in place to mitigate and to make sure that, I think the interesting thing to stop and remember is, if 80 days didn't exist as a concept, you know, if Phileas Fogg, if uh, the Victorian fiction wasn't, a, you know, Michael Palin, Disney, you know, 80 days is a thing. And if that didn't exist as a thing, then I probably would have been quite happy to have broken the previous world record, which was 123 days. So breaking that would have been one thing, but to try and take it to such a new level takes uh, takes a, a level of detailed planning, which, you know, most athletes just wouldn't wouldn't think of because all they care about is their FTP, their, you know, their their recovery, their physical performance. Well, the longer the race gets, the more it becomes about psychology, the more it becomes about logistics, the more it becomes about teamwork, collaborations and, and everything else. You know, the I always joke, there's a lot better bike riders out there than me. That is definitely true. And yet, you know, year after year for the last 15, you know, we, and I'll always say we, have done these first and fastest by considerable leaps and I don't think we live in a meritocracy it's not because I'm a faster bike rider it's because of the you know the power of the plan and you know ultimately getting people to buy into these concepts to begin with I think it's really interesting because I, I'm just thinking about it from a business point of view and you know when you're when you were riding around self-supported you had to do everything didn't you, you had to find a solution for the spokes you had to find the nutrition um you know you started that with as veg i'm going to come back to nutrition because your your vegetarian plan had to go out the window fairly early on didn't it um but you were doing everything and as a result you i mean you did did a phenomenal job taking a massive chunk off the record at the time but in business the best businesses focus on something that a guy called Dan Sullivan calls your unique ability. So you took all of that other stuff off your plate, didn't you, by doing it the second time and focused on your unique ability, which is the ability to be able to cycle phenomenal distances day after day. And by doing that, you could massively leverage up the results. Uh, and, and that's essentially what, you know, what happens in, in the best businesses. Um, I think I think it is incredible, and so I, I think I didn't mean to imply, and I hope you didn't take it that I was implying that that it was going to be, you know, the uh, you know no brainer that you got round the second time, because it is a phenomenal achievement. Cycling, I mean, I've cycled two hundred miles, uh, and the and that was that was a tough day, but the idea of getting well, a doing another forty miles at the end of that, or even another eighty five miles, because I think you on I think the day you cycled to Brisbane, didn't you knock out two hundred eighty five miles that day? Hmm. Um, yeah, to do another eighty five miles on that day would have been a huge ask. But the idea of then getting up at half past three the following morning and going again and doing another two hundred and forty miles, or jumping on a flight and then fly, I mean that's that's just in, an insane level and. I, um, what sort of training do you did you need to do to be able to get to the point where you could not just cycle 240 miles or 285 miles, but you could do it day after day after day? So most most athletes doing sort of normal short short races, and I'll include like an Ironman in that. Um, anything which is over in a you know a concise amount of time, less than a day, you know, you can ride to fail. 
you know you're you can leave it all out there and you know you have a warm bath and and feel sore the next day but it's done whereas obviously ultra endurance multi-day multi-week multi-month stuff like i do it's got to be ultimately sustainable um so you cannot completely empty the tank today because then you won't be able to do it tomorrow um so that's the first important part most athletes do really solid base training over the winter months and then rack up towards their events with intensity and speed sessions into the spring and summer whereas adventure athletes ultra endurance athletes tend to do the opposite because we will never replicate our load by that i mean the duration that we do our events in training so you know even if you're training up to doing a marathon you know you'll have done something approximate before even if it's two-thirds you know that what they call the domain that last third where you really go into the into the unknown you know you'll have you'll have done something close if you're riding for a century maybe you've done a 70 mile ride if you're running running a marathon maybe you'll have run 22 whatever but the trouble with ultra endurance is your load the time you spend doing what you do is so much longer than you can ever do in training even when i was training full time for the world you know i'd be doing 25 30 hours a week in training and then i was transitioning to 16 hours a day so you cannot in training it doesn't matter how full-time you are do 16 hours a day seven days a week uh, you know it's ridiculous so ultra endurance athletes spend their entire time in what a lot of race athletes would consider sort of overtraining syndrome you know that that level where you lose your top end you lose your ability to raise your power and your heart rate you're not getting optimal recovery but you've got to find a sustainable output where you can endure you can keep going so that classic overtraining you get when you build your load too much or you take too big jumps in training is an interesting phenomenon with ultra endurance athletes who ultimately have to keep performing at that sort of suppressed level um so when i say we sort of do reverse training it's massively important for ultra endurance adventure athletes to over the the off season long before the event happens to do a lot of high intensity power sessions, you know, building their top end. Because if you think of where you need to then sit when you're doing your ultra endurance event, um, you want to pull up the top of that pyramid so that your, your, your ability to go all out is, is higher, is harder. You know, the, the old fashioned way of thinking of endurance is you just go out and do long rides. You'd sit at zone one, zone two, tap it out and you've got one gear it's hugely helpful for athletes to build their top end so they know how to suffer, you know, so physiologically, psychologically, that you, you, you know how to push yourself through the ranges. So you can lift your effort into the headwinds, into the hills, and you've got, you've got a range to play with. But also because it does pull up your average, you know, your long-term endurance space, whatever that, whatever that is. Um, but then as you get to the final two, three months before your event, you're switching from being very fit in a narrow sense of the word to building the conditioning to endure long hours. So then it becomes things like, you know, just can you, can you endure long hours in the saddle, your neck position, your backside, your feet, your hands, nerve damage, things which, you know, a normal roadie would get to like four or five hours into a ride and you're like, okay, I'm done. Not because my legs can't keep going because I've fueled effectively, but because I'm too sore to keep going. 
And that deep conditioning to be able to do long, long, long hours is something that you need to train. And I think a lot of want-to-be endurance adventure athletes miss that part because they smash themselves on the turbo trainer. They think they've pushed their FTP up and then they think, well, it's just a case of going easier and sitting there for longer and and just and just sort of but but you've got to have the physical competence and the psychological experience to 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 endure to spend those long 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 hours in the saddle and you know if you're you know you sat there and said you know i did a 200 mile day and it hurt well you probably you probably did it as a one-off without you know ever having sort of staged staged up to it and then you know psychological arcs you'd set that up as a big day. And when you got to 200 miles, you're like, I'm done. Whereas if that had been a 240 mile day, then your psychological arc, your expectation, your mindset around it would have been completely different and you would have got to 240 and you'd have been done. So I think the power of that expectation when it comes to endurance is hugely important. But in terms of training your nervous system, you know, literally training your conditioning, your, your, your resilience, your positioning, your biomechanics, to long, long, long hours in the saddle, just like runners. That's something that happens in the final weeks and months. And I think a lot of athletes miss that point because you can be super fit, you can be really strong, but fit for a purpose. And if you've never built out the, the load, the duration of what you do, then once you get to, to the domain, that sort of final third, when it really, really bites, um, you're just so far from your comfort zone, mentally and physically, that you know a lot of people just can't complete fantastic and uh, that, that makes a lot of sense and i think um when it comes to the to the endurance piece what um you know clearly a lot of it is a mental thing as opposed to a physical thing probably the further you go i don't know is is more of it mental than physical i'm not sure maybe you've got a thought on that but what what um techniques have you developed or kind of learned as a result of your experiences to help you with the mental endurance side of things? So, I mean, I'm, it's definitely uh, nurture, not nature when it comes to psychology. You might be born as a, you know, a, a certain character type. I see it with my own two daughters, but um, the ability to, to suffer, you know, and I don't care whether you're, running a 10k or you know cycling around the planet you you've, you've got to be able to you've got to have grit you've got to have grit you got to you know that four letter word is massively underestimated as an athlete you know um your 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 mindset your belief your want to go deep that sort of wry smile your humor these things are are learned through hard miles and um the more you do the more you you understand yourself and um you end up having these crazy conversations with people who have put themselves through similar places. And, you know, you, you, people who haven't look at you and ask those questions about why and what's it for and, you know, what you get from these things. And it's hard to talk to because the, that entire topic is the classic. If you need to ask the questions, then you'll never understand the answers. You've got to have lived it. You've got to have done difficult things. You've got to have suffered to understand what it gives you in life, you know, what, what it gives you in terms of your identity, what it gives you in terms of your purpose and your passion. And the fact that, you know, life is very comfortable unless we choose to make it uncomfortable. 
uh, and there is so much to be gained from figuring out what our best lives are physically getting into the great outdoors pushing ourselves our relationship with nature and wild spaces when we are physically active you're not just a passenger in a place but you're you've taken yourself there you're you're wiping the sweat from your brow you have run that mountain you have you know you've felt how slippy the terrain is you've you've ridden that bicycle across the continent you have you have taken yourself there uh, and that that sort of journeying and that perseverance to 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 create a memory is so much more vibrant is so much more real and long lasting than just being dropped in as a tourist might or a or a driver might so you know your original question is about mindset and you know how do you build that it's the topic that i've been writing about a fair amount in in a book i've just written called called endurance and it's so hard to put your finger on because for me the at the base of at the base of even having an interest in these topics why you would be listening to this podcast for example is about identity is about how you see yourself in the world and if you want to fundamentally reshape your motivations you know your habits your ability to go out and do difficult things as an athlete you've got to shift how you see yourself and see yourself in the world and it's very hard to not live up to your own expectations of yourself so if you suddenly become you know an ironman person or a you know a century rider or an around the world cyclist by redefining how you see yourself will fundamentally change how the world sees you and will therefore almost by accident give you the belief systems to do those things um we could geek out on this all day but you know i'm hugely passionate about sort of trying to figure out what that is and it's no it's no one x factor it's just you've got to it's got to be deeply personal you've got to be trying to sort of figure out how to just being aware of what makes you feel alive and not thinking about an athletic journey or performance as a moment in time you know it's not about sort of getting to some sort of peak in terms of results or like i won or anything like that because ultimately it's about your health it's about the ecosystem that exists around you in terms of your friendship groups and it's about just having that sort of prime consistent you know positive relationship with the world around you and i think athletes who get very fixated on numbers be it their 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 time trial their their time trial number or you know their 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 power numbers or their positioning compared to their friends that is a that is an output that is that is a result those are results those are those are statistics along the journey but they don't ultimately define your 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 happiness long term or your sense of purpose as an athlete that's got to be defined by what what the sport gives you you know and and just the reason you get out of bed every morning to train and to better yourself and to be physically active and i think people get very tied up in the fact that it's about you know specific moments and times or numbers or results and they're just 
punctuation marks along the way. And I think it's important to realize that life will be wonderfully unfulfilling if you define yourself by those things. And it's, 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 it's more prime primitive than that. It's, 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 it's more about your identity and the relationship with the world around you. Trust me, all these Guinness world records on the walls, that's not why you cycle around the world. You know, that would be a, you go through the blues, you feel pretty shoddy after you finish a, 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 you know, a race on that scale because you've lost your purpose. You've lost your identity. You've lost the thing that was important to you for a long period of time. So you don't race around the world to get to the finish. You race around the world because you get to cycle around the world. And, 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 and why did you set out to do these challenges? Actually, you know, before I ask that, do you enjoy the challenges while, while you're doing them? Sometimes. Bits of them. Yeah. Or, or but, some, yeah. I think, you know, let's be honest, you know, cycling around the world in 78 days was not the most fun thing I've ever done as an athlete. You know, it was incredibly painful. Um, I'm incredibly proud of it and of my team that, you know, enabled that to happen. But I think I'm, I th this is not an ego statement, but I'm very, very scared of being average. I, I, you know, the seven plus billion people on the planet, and I am very scared of doing nothing remarkable in life and just, just existing. You know, my driving force is not about wealth, although I don't want to struggle. My, my, my driving force is not about power, although I like to have influence and in things that I'm interested in. The thing for me is, is about how I see myself, how you define yourself. And I think that's fundamentally important because, you know, when I left university, I had options. You know, I could have had a finance career, which, you know, I'm sure I would have pursued very eagerly, but I felt I had an opportunity to go out and do something which was mine. I could fundamentally put my name above the door. And I don't care whether people, you know, where they work or what they do is about choice. And you want to feel like f for yourself, you're in the driving seat of your career. You're, you know, you, 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 have, you have choice and you're good at making choices. I see around me all the time, young people who are super smart, but they don't feel like they've got control. And I think that's what gives you sort of health and happiness more than anything else. You know, you, you want to be the master of your own destiny. So why did I cycle around the world? because I love the idea of doing something that's not been done before. Not for the fact that I've actually beaten somebody else's record, but by the fact that, you know, for myself, it's that sort of pioneering spirit. You know, I feel like how exciting to get a chance to, to do something new, to figure out something for myself, which is absolutely exciting and difficult and, you know, got a, a risk to it. And I think it's important to, to recognize that you know we're, we're not all wired up the same clearly but that that wants to feel like we've got an element of control and you know if you're going to look back you know what is the life affirming career defining moments you want to feel like you've created them you don't want to feel like you've just sort of you know treaded water for for for, for this life that's been given to you and and of the different uh, achievements that you've had whether it be your africa one or around the world ones what do you think was the toughest psychologically? Okay, so as, as a performance athlete, 
the the round the world in 80 days was by far the hardest in terms of um sleep deprivation just the whole cognitive behavior of it two and a half months if you looked at my cortisol levels my stress hormone you know i was in a very very difficult place for two and a half months but i i, I always knew i would be so yeah in terms of performance that was the hardest thing i've ever done um it's it's not at all the most difficult situation i've been in so capsizing rowing the atlantic you know rowing from africa to the caribbean after 28 days going wrong way up and then spending 14 hours trying to save the lives of myself and my crew you know that's the only time where i very clearly thought i'm going to die and it was a very analytical thought the upset came afterwards but i had to work very very hard for six hours to do what was needed to bring us all home and i was incredibly analytical i was very very process driven and i was very proactive and i'm very proud of the fact that we all came back alive um you know you can't compare that to the round the world cycle where i was just you know if things went wrong i got off the bike but in the high mountains some of the situations i've been in where sadly you know people have lost their lives and um the atlantic where you know it was very nearly us these are objectively a lot more a lot more dangerous they're they're, they're a lot more difficult to deal with but um you've kind of got to put them in a different box than high performance in terms of endurance. Well, and, and that's, that's kind of why I ask, because I mean, I, I suspect there's, it, it's a different type of um, psychological challenge, depending on the, you know, just taking the two round the world cycles again, you know, one is you out on your own kind of discovering things for the first time. And one is you as a team having being pushed to the absolute limits. Um, and is there so so yeah I, I get that there's a very different um psychological kind of toughness needed um is do you have a preference you know with with future events will you do you have a preference as to which way you will lean on those which ones you kind of think you enjoy more i think my risk profile has probably changed as i've grown up so some of the things i did in my 20s i probably wouldn't do now and um you know, some of the ocean rowing and mountaineering expeds. Um, having said that, I think probably the round the world in 80 days was, was, I said it before, like my Everest in terms of ultra endurance. I've got no reason to cycle around the world a third time. Um, I do want to still push myself as an athlete in the endurance space, which is why for the first time in my career, I'm taking on some of the most iconic endurance events out there, like, race across america cape epic and others but um these are still big events but they're short compared to what i've done in the past so i've done a lot of sort of three to six month expeditions and races whereas you know these are all over in a matter of you know a week 10 days two weeks so it's a it's a totally different thing in terms of what I plan to take on in the future, I've got those sort of bucket list events, but it's more a case of I'm intrigued to know how I will do in a competitive field, standing on a start line with others around me, as opposed to going out there and doing these big expedition documentary projects. But the truth of the matter is I've really enjoyed taking the pressure off over the last couple of years and finding the sheer adventure of sport again, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to, that quite sort of limiting and linear process of 
how do I become a better endurance road rider? So I've been doing a lot more gravel riding. I've been doing some daft stuff like racing my penny farthings and, you know, vintage rides and, you know, all sorts of stuff. So I've probably spent more time in 2020 um, fell running, road running, open water swimming, gravel riding, doing adventure sports of all ilk, rather than just going out and trying to push my numbers as a road rider. And, and so, so what is on that bucket list? What have, what have you, knowing what you've learned over the course of the last few months and exploring different activities, what's on the bucket list and perhaps what wasn't on the bucket list that now might be? I'd like to do, so, so I think I've mentioned a few in terms of the cycling side of stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm a presenter for, for GCN, for Global Cycling Networks, for their big documentaries. So not the, the main YouTube channel, which is more, you know, how to be a better bike rider, but more where we go off and do big, big journeys. So I've made a couple of films, uh, documentaries in Scotland over the recent months because we couldn't travel so far. Again, big gravel rides, multi-sport. Um, and I plan to do a lot more of them when we're allowed to get back to normal travel. Uh, I've got plans to go and do one in the, in the Norwegian Arctic over the winter, like basically a, a, a full night arc polar Arctic gravel ride for a thousand kilometers. And imagine, um, you know, imagine where midnight looks like midday. Um, I, I, I just before, lockdown i um was out in chile doing a free ride down the world's highest volcano uh 6893 meters climbing with bikes to the top and riding through the atacama desert um brainstorming at the moment doing doing big adventure rides lebanese mountain trail out in nepal um all sorts of stuff um you know for me i I love the idea of trying to do things that people haven't done before and also make, make interesting documentaries, you know, have time to also stop and, you know, soak up the culture and the people and the places. So yeah, as a filmmaker, I want to do, I want to, I basically want to use the bike as a vehicle to take me to interesting places and try hard things. Fantastic. Well, I mean, you, that, that's an amazing list of things. I'm my bucket list is expanding rapidly trying to, <laughs> trying to keep up, but, um, I mean, those just sound awesome adventures. Given all of the cycling that you've done, oh, actually, I suppose I haven't, I haven't read your book on the, um, on the cycling across Africa. How did cycling, or down Africa as opposed to across it, um, how did cycling through Africa compare to kind of the, the rest of your world experiences? I would say, I mean, Africa, if I was to go back to one continent more, uh, and explore more in a bicycle it would be africa it's just such an extraordinary and diverse place you know you got that route six thousand miles you got the sahara desert in the north you got the ethiopian highlands and down through some pretty rough wild riding through this sort of southern ethiopia and kenya and then you've got the great savannas through uh tanzania zambia botswana south africa you know the you know literally the elephant highway and riding alongside giraffes at full flight and you know it's 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 dreamy stuff um for me africa was probably the perfect combination between going for a record pushing myself hard as an athlete but also being very reliant on the world around me you know still unsupported still carrying my own kit you know albeit you know i was riding a race bike, carbon DI2 bike, seven and a half kilos of bike packing kit going super light, but I still didn't have a truck with me. So I was still 
very much a case of where's my next meal? Where am I going to get clean water? Where am I going to sleep tonight? And I loved that race. It was, um, it was awesome. You know, by the time I then took on the 80 days, I didn't have any of that. Like I lived in a little performance bubble where I, you know, I, I, I could see the world around me, but I never engaged with it. So, so Africa was awesome. And, you know, to bike pack Africa at the speed of, you know, 160, 170 miles a day was unforgettable. I loved it. It's, it's the one that I think, you know, I look at what, what you've done so far and think that's the one I'd like to have a go at. The idea of cycling around the world from a time perspective and logistics perspective, having you know, now understood what some of the logistics involved are, yeah. seems like a bridge too far as a, as a dad and as somebody who runs their own business. But cycling the length of Africa does actually seem a, a, a achievable. Um, and how, how achievable is it for somebody that, you know, is, is a strong cyclist, but from a logistical point of view and also from a safety point of view, I mean, I, I, I love South Africa, you know, Botswana, Tanzania, but I've not done, you know, mm. I, Ethiopia, I'd imagine would be a very different experience. How, how, how achievable is it for, for most people? I mean, the, the answer is, is very, um, you know, I've obviously been asked a lot about the Africa trip because there's a lot of fear of the unknown when you go to the African continent and perceive danger. Um, you know, I never had to unwrap my tent the length of Africa. I never had to ask a second person for a meal to eat or a place to sleep, which I don't think would happen if you were cycling from Land's End to John O'Groats. Um, yes, you need to be streetwise. Yes, you need to know what you're doing. But... Um, you know, the people throughout are just extraordinarily welcoming. And um, I think a lot of our prejudices and assumptions around risk are, are just that. And um, when you go to the parts of the world, I mean, if you look at statistically some of the worst accidents that have happened in terms of sort of endurance cycling, I would say probably America is the worst. It's not India where you might think the, tra the, dri the, the, the driving is crazy and whatnot. It's I think there's almost more understanding and more more of a cycling culture in these parts of the world where there's less of a divide between other road users and cyclists. So traveling through most of Asia or Africa, you know, you're immediately understood and accepted and integrated uh, as, a, as a bike rider. Whereas when you are, you know, piling across the plains of Texas, you know, you feel pretty alone because there's a world that divides you and the norm. Um, so again, I'm just sort of breaking down some of people's perceptions and barriers around going to, you know, big, bad, scary Africa. It's an incredible continent to explore at the speed of a bike. And yes, of course you need to be careful. And there are parts which you need to get up-to-date advice on, but um, you know, for the most part, it's that classic doorstep mile. It's the fear of the unknown is people not wanting to do something that they've not done before, which would stop them ever doing something like that, as opposed to the reality that you find on the ground. I think it just sounds fantastic. I, I think, um, you know, I've cycled in the States a bit and I can, if, if you know, that was daunting in certain places, but more because of, of the unknown, but the idea of, of, um, of just getting on a bike and going through Africa, I actually, I, I kind of, earmarked the idea of cycling between the tests at the lot doing the lions tour and cycling between the tests because that sounded like a, a nice way of kind of breaking into it but um 
it does sound like that sounds like a, a, a fantastic trip to do. And if somebody was trying, you know, planning a trip like that, um, what from a nutrition point of view? I mean, I, I know I remember you when you were doing your self-supported trip, you went, you know, you were vegetarian at the time, I think, weren't you? But it wasn't that long before you were eating offal and I remember you talking about some soup with all sorts of different lumps of meat in there um, that even as a meat eater didn't sound very appealing. Uh, how, how would you approach doing a trip like that from a nutrition point of view in terms of what do you take, what, what should you eat, mm. what should you avoid? Well, when you're doing, I mean, when you're doing multi-day, multi-week unsupported, you obviously need to be reliant on the world around you. You simply can't take so you'll need to have some some spares and some, some supplies with you but you know what people get away with on a single day sportif is very different than big expedition riding so you can throw all sorts of nonsense into yourself if you're just doing a six-hour ride you know you can live off gels and jelly babies if you want but you as anyone who's done any endurance or expeditions will appreciate your tummy normally gives up before your before your legs give up so you've got to keep it natural. You've got to make sure that, you know, you're, you're pretty kind to yourself. You've got to have a, you know, a carb appropriate diet so that you're, you're putting in the fuel that you need. So people, you know, people really sort of worry about um, those, those proportions of the macronutrients, your fats, your, 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 your proteins and your carbs in training. The reality when you get out on expedition is, you know, you're, Yes, you're probably wanting to be quite fat adapted. And so far as you're going to, you know, I couldn't, if, if I was on the 80 days and eating eight, 9,000 calories a day, you can't be eating eight, 9,000 calories of spaghetti. You know, you just, the bulk of it, you wouldn't get in. And also to give you that slow release of energy, you're going to want, you know, calorie dense foods, you know, higher fat content, but also appropriate carbs. So you've carbs, so you've got some, some, you know, some more, some more power, some more energy, some some quicker release stuff if and when you need it. And then during the day, using the the treats, if you like, as such, as opposed to a base. Uh, so your caffeines, your sugars, things which are... But understanding that mentally and physically, you know, you want to iron out the peaks and troughs that you have on an endurance ride and, and food. Fueling is at the heart of that. So you can sort of say, well, in theory, I'll eat small amounts and regularly and but the reality is when you're riding through the Sahara Desert, you might find a truck stop, you know, every four hours and you might be water rationing between them. So with with all the best laid plans, you need to have flexibility. Um, when I'm back here, I sort of have a pescatarian diet. I do eat meat, but only when I know when it's come from, because of all food sorts, you know, anything which is heavily processed through a factory and meats are going to be you know have the most additives and most foods that are sort of pretty foreign to your body so i think you know i'm definitely from the keep it natural school of nutrition you have to be very kind on your gut so that it keeps working if you climb to altitude or you push yourself through ultra endurance your tummy will slow down and keeping your intestines working and ultimately how closely aligned your mental state is with your fueling strategy you know, if you bonk or if you have a psychological crash on the road, it's normally goes hand in hand with a nutritional crisis. Yeah. And, and is it, have you, have you had instances where you kind of, you know, 
where your nutrition strategies backfired and you've had to kind of readapt or do something differently? Yeah, I mean, I've had, you know, multiple cases on big expedition rides of food poisoning and where I've, you know, just got it wrong or I've run out of food or, you know, more fundamentally run out of water. Water rationing in these big stretches is a big problem. I mean, these are pretty extreme examples because I'm talking about, you know, being out in the middle of the Atacama Desert or Patagonia or up in the wilds of the Yukon or in the Australian outback, you know, for if people are listening to this podcast and that is their problem as well, then yeah, you need to build experience to know how to pack your bike out and how to fuel effectively, you know, in these remote unsupported expeditions. But for more practical day-to-day advice, it's a lot's been made in recent years of all sorts of you know, like keto diets and, you know, training fasted and all these, all these things. Fundamentally, I I don't want anyone to go into any camp wholeheartedly because they think it sounds like a good idea. I want people to be inquisitive. I want people to tweak their plans and make it deeply personal. So their fueling strategy should be not just a great idea because they read a book on it, but, you know, adjusted to, to to who you are as a person the event you're taking on and what you've practiced and what's what's available to you as well so I think the risk these days especially with social media and so many athlete experts out there is you know people just jump in in quite extreme ways with certain fueling plans or certain training plans or whatever it is and you know what I always sort of encourage is to be very inquisitive to try different things we're creatures of habit so force yourself to you know make those changes but then be open to 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 break the rules that are given to you uh because only then can you figure out what 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 works over these big events anyone can wing it on a one-day event that lasts five six hours but when you go into bigger expedition riding multi-day multi-week then you know you'll you'll get unstuck if you don't know yourself and you've not built your tolerance to different fueling strategies brilliant and i yeah so so essentially kind of just work out what works for you and practice it and get used to it and and kind of identify that that's that's great advice thank you and there's i mean there's there's some basics like most people just geek out on the macros and make sure they're getting enough carbs and proteins and whatnot but but again the micros that's what most people miss every day you know genuinely knowing that's the you know i'll the, the clear analogy, your, your, your macros are your, your, your petrol in the tank. Have you got enough fuel to keep going and to recover from exercise? Your micros, that's the oil, you know, to use the car analogy. And to, to, to make most people put so much petrol in their car that they just don't need it. And that's blindingly obvious in terms of what, what goes wrong then. But then there's just not enough of the good stuff, the little stuff to keep the to keep the human engine going efficiently and effectively over time. And that's why you need to really, really care about, you know, your your your, your all your micronutritional sort of sources every day. Um, and, you know, I would ever, I would only I would keep any supplements to an absolute minimum, um, maybe your cod liver oil and your your multivets and, you know, maybe some cherry active or something like that. But but you can you can really care about where all your antioxidants are coming from and make sure that you're consistent around that because honestly in terms of mindset and energy levels that's as important if not more important than you know getting enough carbohydrate in your plate and and, it, and is that something you would monitor particularly closely like would you keep track of 
of uh, of those micronutrients in terms of what's in the diet or is it more you know you just take those supplements to try and eliminate any shortfalls um whenever i've made changes as an athlete i keep a food diary but then normally once they become a habit i i don't need to i don't need to diarize it quite so closely um so yeah i mean i'll sh- i mean i guess i've got the, the the benefit of having a performance manager so i'll share that information and we'll we'll make choices together around any changes but um yeah i mean it, it also makes you a lot more inquisitive in the kitchen and interested in what you're making and and you know not just taking the raw ingredients but like how do you prepare them to keep the nutrition in them you know vegetables are a great example so um the the short answer to your question is just i stay inquisitive i make changes based on what the needs are you know what the seasons are going into winter um you know what my load is in terms of training how i'm feeling in terms of like simple metrics like you know my quality of sleep or um you know what else is happening in my life you know juggling kids and work and travel and the rest of it so no i mean as long as you're not too rigid as long as you're willing to change what you eat be aware you know if you are making bigger changes, you know, diarize that, have a bit of thought process around it, but then realize after a couple of weeks, you can probably then just call it a habit sort of thing. Okay, fantastic. Um, and you touched on books there and, and are there any particular, I mean, I've genuinely loved reading your books or listening to your books and I found them inspiring to the point where when you were getting to the end of them, I was actually kind of uh, you know, getting quite emotional about you finishing the journey <laughs> myself. Um, so uh, if anybody was watching me cycle by with uh, kind of welling up, they'd have questioned what I was up to. But um, <laughs> have, have there any been any books that have really helped you on that journey, both either in terms of inspiring you or in terms of books that you think have got kind of a lot of practical advice or books that you find yourself recommending to other people? Yeah, I mean, I love I love life stories. So, uh, you know, when it comes to sort of biographies or even listening to you know Desert Island Discs, I I I absolutely geek out on hearing other people's um, how they've strived, how they've pursued excellence in their own in their own field. I mean, I, I can go back to being a teenager and watching Elle MacArthur sail around the world. So, or you know, early you know reading books on the great ages of exploration and the you know north and south poles and the arctic and whatnot though that that was that was me growing up sort of getting interested in adventure and exploration when it comes to specific information i would recommend um endure which is a book by alex hutchison that's a that's a that's a great read yeah uh performing under pressure which is a, a book by um josephine perry um it's actually uh, partly sort of biographical, but there's a, a good book, book I'm reading at the moment called, called Endless Perfect Circles by Dr. Ian Walker. Um, he's, he's got an interesting career. I think he's down at Bath or Bristol Uni, but he's about um, human behavior. He's the guy that has the world record for riding the length of Europe from Nordcap to, to um, the south of Portugal. But he's, um, he's also a behavioral psychologist. So he talks about, you know, why we drive our cars to, rather than cycling bikes and how you make you know um, macro changes based on micro decisions and um, yeah that's that's a good one but I mean, I, mean we could, was, we could... I, I think I missed the title of that what was what was the title of that book called 
Endless Perfect Circles. Oh, that was Endless Perfect Circles. Ah, oh, okay, yes. Yeah. Um, and in terms of like a training book, um, there's a guy called Pav Bryan who's helped me out with the endurance book that I've just written. And he's got the guide to truly effective cycling, which is pretty good for like structured training programs. Okay, fantastic. There's a whole load there that aren't on my uh, reading list already. So uh, that'll, be, that'll be expanding further. Um, and I suppose the last question, because uh, I'm you know, very conscious that you've been very um, generous with your time. Uh, if somebody wanted to get into um, endurance cycling, not necessarily for the level that you are, but maybe cycling the, the length of Africa, uh, what's the one piece of advice that you would give them? So my, my one bit of advice would definitely be about that, that doorstep mile. You know, the people spend their life talking about wanting to do these things. So it's not normally physical ability that stops people. It's, it's, it's committing to the ideas. So the doorstep mile is a lovely phrase. It's a Scandinavian phrase about the fact that you never regret going for a ride, but it's sometimes hard to go for a ride. And the doorstep mile is that, turning a thought into an action and so that that's that process that habit of the doorstep mile and even being aware of it as a concept um is what stops most of us turning our dreams into realities and i realize that might sound a bit sort of a bit sort of fuzzy but fundamentally you know, we could talk about nutrition all day. We could talk about training plans. We could talk about logistics and routing. But but fundamentally, if you don't turn the big ideas into something that might happen to something that will happen, you know, afford the time and whatever other resources it takes to commit to that. Say it out loud. Tell your friends. Become accountable to your own dreams you need to do that because otherwise time just slips away and it will become something which you once thought about. So for anyone, you know, who has that bucket list, there's, there's always a good reason not to do it. There's always a reason that we're not quite in the right space of time or, or priorities. But if it's important enough and it's something that you believe you're going to look back on, you know, as a formative part of your career, then you need to commit to it. You need to become accountable to that and understanding that that process of, it goes back to the very first thing that we spoke about, you know, make it your identity. If you're that person, it's very hard to not live up to your identity. I watch my kids every day. They have amazing ideas and they're used to just living out their ideas. And as adults, we lose that ability, you know, because we're so silly busy. So it's rather simple but just you know commit incredibly powerful as well it might be simple but i think it's you know it's about yeah absolutely setting goals and then getting that first step uh, on the way to to achieving them and put, putting the logistics in place well uh, sort of the logistics will end up working themselves out right? you'll work them out as long as you've committed to doing something so uh, yeah, fantastic advice but mark it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you there is We've only scratched the surface on a whole load of this stuff, I know, um, but it's been it's been a real pleasure, and there's some amazing advice in there. So, a huge thank you for for, for coming on, and um, I wish you every success with the uh, with the next uh, few items on your bucket list. Thanks, Charlie. It's been great fun. 
I'm sure you'll agree, an incredible guy, lovely guy, so insightful in terms of the endurance. Uh, I definitely need to read his new book, uh, but I also definitely need to add cycling the length of Africa to my bucket list uh, and need to make sure that that happens at some point because that does sound like an incredible way of just kind of taking a step into the you know the sort of things that he's achieved so I'm I hope you learned a lot from that chat particularly around the psychology and physiology of endurance uh, and I hope um, that you you know takes your training to the next level as a result of that So keep on training. If you like these podcasts, please review them and share them. Uh, And uh, my name's Charlie Redding and keep on training. And remember, this podcast is brought to you by Brits Superfoods. You can find out more at britssuperfoods.co.uk. But if you use the link in the show notes or you use the referral code of TRIBEATHLON, you'll get 10% off your orders. You'll get a free bag of juices worth £15 with every order. And that those will happen forever. As long as you buy from Brit Superfood, with that, having started with that referral code, you'll get those forever. In addition to that, uh, you'll also benefit from that 110% money back guarantee. So if you don't see the value in it, then uh, then you can they'll give you your money back and an extra 10%. So go check out the link in the show notes or go to britsuperfoods.co.uk and use the referral code TRIBEATHLON and you'll get that 10% off free shipping and free juice on every order. And don't forget to download the TRIBEATHLON app for more amazing podcasts, but also to help you train, compete, and to build your tribe.